and welcome to another uh, class. Uh, actually, I made some changes in the, the name of the uh, class, as you might have noticed. This is now Gospel Discussions uh, with Kevin Hinckley. We were trying to leave out the LDS part as the church is kind of discouraging the use of using uh, LDS. So, so we're going to do that. Uh, well, thank everybody for being here. Uh, as always, let us know where you're coming from. And uh, anytime that you hit share, that, that really kind of extends our outreach. So thanks so much uh, for being uh, here. Now, along with that, I also kind of put out a call for uh, questions. Because these are act part of what we can do in these classes is be able to take advantage of this format to be able to respond to some questions that might come up. And had a good one come up. Uh, had someone ask me, uh, get in touch, and want to know uh, specifically this question. They said that they were always going to church and they were hearing the importance as they take the sacrament or come into church that you are renewing your baptismal covenants. And, and she said, so I'm always hearing about renewing my baptismal covenants. But she said, in reality, I don't know that I know exactly what that means. Um, and on top of that, if I did make baptismal covenants, exactly when did I make them? Because she said, what I remember as uh, even as an adult was the, the bishop doing a worthiness interview. I do the worthiness interview. Then I'm going to get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and everything. Nowhere in that entire thing was you promised to do this and you promised to do this and you promised to do that. There wasn't a set of baptismal covenants that she heard. And initially that was my response too was I'm not sure exactly when those, what those covenants and when those covenants occurred. Uh, just kind of right off the, the top of my head. Um, but, and, and actually in the research, finding and, and taking a look at things that we know, isn't it interesting that in our modern church, we're really not specifically nailing people down to covenants on the day of baptism. But, it, but if we go back to the ancient church, one that we oftentimes refer to I think it's kind of interesting. We go back to the fact that uh, Alma uh, had his interview for his people, and he and he went after covenants with them. And I think implicit in what we do is Alma's set of uh, baptismal covenants. So we're all actually almost better going back to the Book of Mormon to discover uh, what those are. Listen to what his questions were, and that will lead into kind of where we want to be today. He's going to say, among other things, are you willing, if, you, if you're wanting to come into this body of Christ and be part of our community, are you willing to bear one another's burdens? Wow. Okay. Are you willing to mourn with those that mourn? And he said, and comfort those that are in need of comfort. And then the last one is, are you willing to stand as a witness of God in everything that you do? So listen to those phrases. You're, we're to bear, we're to mourn, we're to comfort, we're to stand. Well, those are specific requirements that Alma had, and I think it's implicit in 
the baptismal covenants that we make as well, though we don't necessarily always uh, say them. Sometimes we do in talks and things like that. But what we're doing is we're talking about bearing, mourning, comforting, standing. I think so often when with baptismal uh, ordinances, we get focused on, well, I'm going to be clean and I'm going to be pure and all that. And listen to what Alma was trying to say. He's saying, if you're going to be baptized, you're going to not focus on you. You're going to turn around and focus it outward. And you're going to say, I'm going to bear their burdens over there. They're really struggling. I'm going to mourn with those that are mourning. I'm taking care of them. I'm comforting them. In other words, it's all outwardly focused. And then as I do that, then people are going to know who I am. By this shall people know that you're my disciples. Why? Because you love one another. There is that, that outward sense of that's what baptized, covenanted, people do. They take care of one another. Um, had a chance uh, not too long ago to, to sit in a, in a church meeting and we were starting to talk about these things. And then as people started to talk, I had one man on one side saying, I've, I've been excommunicated. I'm in rehab. And right next to me was I, a man saying, I have stage four cancer. And suddenly, all of those other discussions were superfluous. Because now those were saying, I have real needs. I'm struggling with this. And someone else says, I'm struggling with this. And somebody else said, I struggled with that a couple of decades ago. Here's what I did. Suddenly, we were in this meeting. We went from talk, talking about principles to suddenly we were mourning and comforting those that needed those kind of things. I think that's our baptismal uh, covenant. Now, to better understand how that works and how I think sometimes that has been um, misunderstood over time, um, one of the things that I have talked a little bit about before in some other areas, uh, but I want to I want to do a little bit more of a deeper dive uh, today to kind of address what it is that we have promised and covenanted to do and exactly how that works. Now, in order to do that, I think we go back to what I call the uh, the great parable, and and we find it in Luke 14, flowing down into to Luke 15. And so here's here's briefly the background on this great parable. <laughs> and I know it's a little bit facetious to say one is greater than one of the others, but to me this is one of the most beautiful uh, statements of what God w is trying to do with us and what he wants us to do with other people. The background is that in Luke 14, Jesus appears to have gathered uh, a large group of sinners and tax collectors. Now, I think part of what happened, if you read carefully in Luke 14, you're going to really get a sense that he might have initially invited some of the, the high and mighty, the Pharisees and the leaders and stuff like that, who turned him down. 
they wouldn't come to his feast. They wouldn't come to his meal. And I think the Savior sends his disciples out to the byways and highways and says, bring to me, knowing probably this would happen, right? Um, bring to me those that are ostracized, that wouldn't be accepted into general society and never get a, a, a meal invite like this one and bring them to me. And so they do. And I think, I think this is in Capernaum. Uh, I suspect it's even, I think maybe even his mother might have been involved in helping prepare such a meal. But he brings them all together, these ostracized and marginalized people, and he eats with them. Now, as they do so, as it was in the setting, because these were generally very small houses, uh, black basalt little buildings that they would build. And so a lot of these kind of things took place in an open courtyard very much on the outside of the of the house you get to the upper Galilee you can see these small little houses but each one has kind of a courtyard so it's actually a very public kind of thing anybody walking down the streets would be able to look into the courtyard and see the meal going on at Jesus house in Capernaum now so they're having this meal and this of course is going to attract a multitude of people to watch and it's going to attract the Pharisees and scribes that are going to uh, be upset about what it is that he's doing. So they gather and criticize. And you remember this statement? This man eats with sinners. And they're going to make a great ruckus. They didn't do all the cleanliness laws. And these guys haven't purified themselves, even though we're not in the temple, we try and pretend like we're in the temple. And so we're going to try and do all these cleanliness laws. Um, his man is eating with sinners. How dare he do that? Now, Jesus then, I think, in my mind's eye, and I could be way wrong, um, I think he then stands up. And I think he stands literally as the door. Uh, and there's a time when he will say, I am the door. Uh, and so in a sense he has his sheepfold behind him with his sheep um, that are gathered and he stands in the doorway and here are these criticizing people the Pharisees, the scribes they're, they're out over here and he's going to stand in between Okay, and then what does he do well he says well in answer to your criticism I'm going to tell you a parable one parable the great parable. I call it great because it, it has three parts to it. And specifically, as he's intervening, this great parable, and we know these in, in Luke 15, is going to talk, first of all, about lost sheep. And then he's going to talk about a lost coin. And then he's going to talk about lost boys. And in each case, you've got somebody that's going to go out of their way to capture, recapture something very valuable that has been lost to them. And watch how they respond. Uh, and we'll kind of refer to this uh, as we go. And, and certainly you remember um, how the, the story goes. When we get to the idea of uh, the boys that we tend to call... We tend to call this third part of the great parable the, the parable of the prodigal son. And I think that's way misnamed. It should either be the parable of the prodigal sons 
because Jesus is going to begin by saying a man had two sons or it should be the, the parable of the benevolent father because you're going to watch how he loves his sons and what he does in response. Now you recall, let's first of all take the, the youngest son. And the youngest son, typically called the prodigal, is going to take his inheritance and he wants his inheritance right away. That would mean, Dad, I'm not waiting for you to die. I, I want the portion that will fall to me. Now that's no small task. That's saying, I want you to, I want my inheritance to fall to me. And in this case, the oldest son is going to get two-thirds of the land. He gets the double portion because he's the oldest. And the younger son is going to get the other third. So he gets a full third of the ancestral land, which he then immediately turns around and sells so that he can then make haste and get out of there. And recall that as he's going to do that, uh, it would probably be a fire sale. He probably the, the land goes for cheap. He goes off and he's going to and he's going to spend it in riotous living, as we know, until the drought comes and it's all spent. And he finds and he comes to to find himself in a place, a pigsty, where he's feeding the swine. He's a Jewish man that shouldn't even be around swine. Um, but then he realizes even, even the employees, they're called servants in this, but the employees, the servants uh, of my father are, have a better time of it than this. Uh, I want to go home. But he realizes that he can't go home because he made it was such a public spectacle of him selling. So he concocts a plan. Now, sometimes in this we've said he came to himself. Oh, he must have repented. Uh, most Middle Eastern scholars would say, no, this is not about repentance. This is, this is literally concocting a plan to save himself. It's a self-saving plan. And he says, so he comes to himself, meaning he, he concocts a plan. What's the plan? He says, I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say to him, um, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I've abdicated that when I sold my inheritance. But uh, hire me as a servant. Hire me as an employee. And I think at the back of this he's saying, A, I'll have a place to live and I'll eat okay, save my life. The second part is, the self-saving plan is, if I do this, I might be able to slowly buy my way back into the family business. It might be a way to survive and maybe make up some, some things here. So, so the, the plan is, remember, I'm no longer your son, I'm going to be a servant. And I'll bet he's repeating that all the way as he's getting there so he can repeat that. And, and we recall that what's going to happen here is that when he arrives, um, after he has his plan to save himself, he's going to say, how many of my hired servants, they have an abundance of bread, um, I'll arise, uh, I've sinned against heaven and against you, Dad. And he's repeating it over and over and over. I got this covered. Okay. Now, I'm no longer worthy to be called thy son. He gets there. That's the speech. That is the speech. Now, as we know, the father isn't going to let him complete that speech. He's going to arrive. His father comes running. 
which in itself is a, a story for another time. Uh, but the father is going to say to him, um, son, um, he is returned, he comes running, uh, and, and so the son starts into his spiel. I'm no longer worthy to be called thy son. And the father says, stop. And he turns to the servants. Put on him, probably takes off his own ring, give him this ring. Give him the ring, put the robe onto him, immediately he's being accepted back as uh, a son and as and as a full heir if he's got the ring he has the ability to transact business uh, he's going to be able to be a full heir and he doesn't even let him get to the uh, I'm the son part I'm not or I'm the servant part we're not even going there your son and then he's going to very loudly proclaim why am I doing all of this because and then listen closely, because this is the Savior that is repeating this to the Pharisees. This, my son, was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. And you might almost think of Jesus thinking of his own father, who at some point his father is going to say, he was dead, and now he lives again. And I think there's a beautiful parallel there. But the, but the father in this case is going to do all of this and then he's going to, then he's going to celebrate. He's going to celebrate with um, a feast. Kill the fatted calf because in the parable uh, in the first two thirds of the parable the, the shepherd who finds the lost sheep gathers his friends together and says let's have a celebration and a meal because the sheep was lost and now it's found. I'm going to celebrate. Be joyous with me. For the woman that loses her coin, she finally finds this coin and then she gathers her friends together and says, celebrate with me. Have a meal of joy and celebrate that what I lost is now found. And that's exactly what the father is going to do. Kill the fatted calf. I get to be joyous because my son was lost and now he's returned. And, and interestingly enough, He's going to say, uh, in some cases, that even the angels are going to rejoice when when something like this happens. Okay, so he's going to do that, and and it's a pretty good deal. Now, the snag comes. Remember that this parable starts with the idea that a man had two sons. Remember when the older son finds out about the party, the older son is going to find and. And insight, and we get a clue, an idea into his understanding. Jesus left out all the other interactions with the older son, with his father, with the younger brother. But in this flash, we get a chance to see what the older son believes. Here's his understanding. He's going to say, look, I have served you, when he watches this party going on, I have served you like a slave for many years and have never transgressed your command. But... You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I never got the party. Uh, the problem here lies in the fact of how he sees himself. And it lies in this term, served. And it's the same word that we get with the younger brother, served. Both the younger brother and the older brother see themselves as employees and servants. Well, why is that important? Well, it's important because they make it a transaction. 
I am doing what I'm doing because of the reward I'm going to get. And the bigger my work and the more my work, the bigger reward I should get. It has echoes, doesn't it, to the, the parable of the vineyard where the man hires the servants in the morning uh, and then in the afternoon and then in the evening. And the ones in the morning are upset that those in the afternoon got the same wage because they saw themselves as servants. And in this transactional servant-employee world, the harder I work, the more money I should make. Kind of sounds like our capitalistic society, doesn't it? The way our mortality works. Not in the heavenly economy, it doesn't. And that's where Jesus is trying to go here. But these two boys see themselves as servants. One not worthy because he's been gone. The other one working really hard, he should get a bigger party. Um, and, and the father's response uh, is going to be proportional to that. He says, my obedience has been transactional. The more I do, the bigger reward I expect. Now, the father's response sets this tone. When we go back to the idea of what is it that we covenant to do as members of the church and as members of Christ's community. Listen to the father's response to these sons that neither one of them understand and he's trying desperately to teach them. The father says to the youngest, we're going to give him a ring, a robe, and the fatted calf. We're going to celebrate that he has returned. Uh, and But to the, the oldest son, listen how he handles this. He's going to say to this speech about, you know, I, I work like a slave. How come I don't get more? Son, you are always with me and everything that is mine is yours. Son, you are an heir, not an employee. That's like somebody saying, I've worked really hard. I want a cabin in the mountains. <laughs> and, and, and the father says, why would you want the cabin? I want to give you the whole mountain range. I want to give it to you all. I own the whole mountain range. I want to give you, I'm, you're going to own it all. Why would you limit yourself to one little bit here? But sometimes in our kind of our, our Middle Eastern, our Middle Ages kind of thinking, it comes to us. Remember all these little ideas about who gets the bigger mansion, you know, in heaven kind of thing, those that have been the more righteous. He's going to say, it was appropriate to celebrate and rejoice. Because there is rejoicing from the angels in heaven. Because this brother of yours, this younger brother that you despise, he was dead, but he's alive. He's a lost and he was found. And we're going to celebrate in a great, great way. Now, look at how he handles this then. What he's trying to say is, your love may be transactional, but I need you to see that I love you fully and deeply and completely. Now, where did we get this attitude of, of loving God, serving God in a transactional sort of way, where we're just going we're, we're gonna to serve him for a, a hope of the bigger reward and worrying about how worthy we are as determining our worth. That is a very pernicious kind of 
problem because it gets in the way. Well, where does it come from? Well, quite honestly, there's a history here. Um, I had uh, a few years ago, I had a woman come to me and she says, I've been having a hard time because, and she told me about a traumatic event that had happened to her. And she says, I just can't believe it happened because I have done everything right. I've ticked all the boxes. Why would God do that to me? I worked hard for the A. How come I didn't get an A? In fact, why am I why hurting? And then she says, I'm, I've tried so hard to serve and be worthy. And basically what she's saying is, I've tried so hard to determine my worth as a result of what I've done. I should get the bigger reward. What exactly is going on? Now, what's going on here is a, mis is a misunderstanding. And this logic over the ages that just infiltrates uh, is kind of interesting. You can see kind of where it goes. This idea that the worthy go to heaven and get the, he the biggest heavenly mansion and the unworthy go to hell. That's how it works. We get some justification about how that works. Well, in, in the years of Catholicism, the church determined whether you were worthy or not. Worthy or not, you can come and do the confessional and have you done enough uh, to prove that you're, you're worthy. Um, the beautiful thing about that was when someone died, they said, well, at death, we still don't know if you were worthy enough to enter heaven. So, the idea is that you'll stay in purgatory or limbo until God sorts it all out. And what it did, those that are alive can actually help move them. That's where we got indulgences. We're actually the pain of indulgences that might cut years off the time that they're in purgatory and they're lighting candles and petitions to the saints and to Mary and others to intercede to move our unworthy ancestors and family through purgatory to finally make it to heaven because nobody really knows whether they're worth it yet whether they're worthy yet well, remember, the indulgences are what drove the reformers nuts. So when the reformers come along, um, John Calvin, Martin Luther, those guys, um, th they just flip it. You know, we don't want to have it run through the church anymore. We're all unworthy. So we all must confess Jesus. Now, under the we're all unworthy, and so we need to confess Jesus, only those that confess Jesus before they die are saved. As a result, most go to hell. Of all of God's children, this little sliver of group of people are the ones that get to go to heaven, get the big mansions. Everybody else is going to fry in hell because they never heard about Jesus or they weren't, you know, they were all unworthy. They weren't worth that. Uh, in fact, there were some of the reformers who pushed hard on the idea that God had determined beforehand which would go to heaven and which would go to hell. Okay, Now, we got some of the flavor of that because it was the understanding, I think, of Joseph and the church in 1832 when the, the three degrees of glory came along. We had that three degrees of glory. So now there's not just heaven and hell, but there does seem to be a hierarchy based on worthy and worth it things. So from that, 
we get these different degrees of heaven and now we're left to say okay all three are kind of nice places but which one do I deserve which one my worth is going to tell me where I get to be uh, on all of this okay so in the time we have remaining can we just quickly define some terms just kind of as a reminder here let's define some terms when we talk about exaltation we talk about what is our ultimate goal where where's the most eternal joy it would be life with God and I and I think about that with our heavenly parents that would be the place we're told that is just we're gonna be far happier and far more joyful than we have any idea that's number one number two we have no idea of what it looks like but we know that that's the deal so the so the question is and I asked this recently to a group of uh, singles. So, who gets to live with our heavenly parents? What do you got to do to be worth it? To be worthy? To make it to live with our heavenly parents? How, how exactly does that work? Okay? Um, see, those in the celestial kingdom possess it forever and ever. And it says in section 88, are sanctified. And, and it said, what does that mean? Well, it means they can abide a celestial glory. Could we, could we put that in different terms? Uh, those who get to live with God can handle the light. <laughs> those who, who are going to live that joy can handle that kind of glory. Now, in order to handle and to be able to live with God, we've got to become, in a sense, like God, in the sense that we, we are changed into beings that can live in their presence and not be uncomfortable with that. So it's those that can abide a celestial glory uh, without wanting to run. And with that then, these are those that have become most like our heavenly parents. That's our goal. So when the question is not, I think, whether we're worthy or not, the question is, how much like our heavenly parents am I and, and what are they like so that I can be like them? And what we find is that whenever I ask people for superlatives about, can you describe God, God's character, heavenly father, heavenly mother, what would they be like? And almost always it's the same. I think God is love. And I would agree with that. God is love. And they are the personification of love. So, if that's who they are, then if we're going to be like God, what, what change, what transformation do we need? We need to be able to, if we would be like God, we must learn to love like God loves. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. Let's not try and cloud it, okay? So ultimately with that, how's that going to work? Well, that's what the atonement is about. That's when we are reconciled to God by the power of the Lamb. We're changed into people who love and care selfishly only for ourselves versus those who are able to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need and comfort and stand. And we are reconciled to that. So, let's go back then. Just a reminder, what's obedience? We talk about, well, I, in order to be worth it and worthy, I have to be obedient. Well, what does that mean? Well, I believe that obedience simply means and means doing those things that make me more like them. 
anything that I'm doing that teaches me how to love more unselfishly is actually putting me on this covenant path to becoming like them. We say, well, one of the ways that we, we can tell how we're doing is that are we keeping the commandments? Well, what's the purpose of a commandment? What was, why were the commandments given to us? The commandments and ordinances were to teach us how to love. That's the purpose of a commandment, is to turn us into, transform us into, put us in a place where Jesus' atonement and his sacrificial act can transform us into loving, eternal beings. Okay? So if if that's what obedience is, then what's sin? Well, that's easy. Sin is just any action that distances me from my heavenly parents. Anything that causes me to love less and to distances me farther away. The more I love, the closer I am to them. The, the thing, when I'm doing things that aren't like them, I put distance between me and them. Okay? And generally that's things that center on things like pride and self-centeredness. We live in the selfie generation Right, and any time that we're doing the selfie kind of act, that's a distancing process. Whether that's breaking an overt commandment or just an attitude or belief or actions that are all self-focused, those are things that move us away from God. So, if that's obedience and that's sin, then the final piece to hear is what is repentance? Well, repentance is this process of uh, receiving as we start to turn around and we move ourselves here what happens is is that the spirit begins to return to us and the process of the spirit that light that love begins to then draw us closer back to them it's a gradual process not going to happen all at once but the spirit becomes the driver Sometimes we have, we've joked in this class, and I think it's really true, when we w- worry about those that we love that aren't doing the things that they need to be doing now, and we think about, you know what? In the spirit world, I believe we give Jesus a million years with people, and he draws them home. He's good at what he does. Why? Because he loves them. We love him because why? He first loved us. That power of his love will transform us into people that are able to live with our heavenly parents. Therein lies the goal. So let me me finish by by saying this. When we talk about covenants that we make, and and when when we say to Alma, and we say to anybody else, I'm trying to renew my covenants. Which ones? I promise to comfort those that stand in need of comfort. I promise to mourn with those that mourn. We're talking about doing things that express love and, and, and sacrifice for other people. And that is what God does. This is well, my work and my glory to bring to pass your immortality and eternal life and the joy of mankind well if we if we would become like them we have to be trained and taught and tutored 
to become the kind of loving people that are capable of doing that. And I believe that that is the very process that we're engaged in as members of the church and as Christians in general. I bear you my testimony that the Lord does intend to bring us home and to teach us to love like Him. And I bear you my witness of that and I leave it with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.